Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to What? That old queen, a candid and adult take on queer life quandaries at a certain age. So please listen at your own discretion. Presented by Bernie and Tommy, their views are their own and in no way reflect those of any service you may hear this program on. Now, let your ears be upstanding for the <coughs> old queen. Just looking at your face in the zoom. <laughs> I can't stop staring at myself. <laughs> well, yeah, just ignore the zoom. Okay. <laughs> uh, how are you doing? I'm all right. I feel like I've got a headache coming on, but I'm going to power through. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've been a bit like that all week. Mm. I think it's been. Slightly stressful week. It's cold as well, isn't it? And it's I think that gets into your bones and your head. Yeah. But there seems to have been a lot going on. Well, there's someone texting you as we speak. It's, uh, yeah, I'm not even going to look at that. <laughs> <laughs> I just got a message on um, Grinder. Mm. You might want to put a hyperlink in there because people might not be familiar with the application. Right, okay. Um, offering to be my sugar daddy. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a nice offer. Yeah, so I asked exactly how old they are. Mm. 53. <laughs> <laughs> Great. It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think? Are you going to take them up on this? Well, I did say <laughs> I was 48, so it might be difficult. Yeah. <laughs> well... Yeah, sugar older brother. <laughs> I mean, it depends how daddy they are, doesn't it? Yeah. I said, do you want to just shower me with gifts or do you want to have sex? <laughs> what was their reply? Both. Both. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> I would. <laughs> I get offers in the other way. Like I get young guys going, will you be my sugar daddy? Mm. I went... I can probably do the daddy bit. And maybe a bag of sweets. Yeah, but I've run out of sugar. 
<laughs> I might have to go for a na- to the neighbours for a borrow a cup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How's the rest of your week been? Um, quite good, really. I'm sort of in the middle of two projects, um, and they're both going kind of well. Yeah, slow but steady. Mm. And I'm interviewing everyone in the old market area, which is where I live. Sort of, it's an area that's seen a lot of seem has seen a lot of changes over the last sort of ten years. Mm. Interviewing people about how they feel about that, whether they consider it gentrification. Yeah, that's lots of different characters. In fact, you may be gentrified if you take up this sugar daddy. Yeah, I'm part of the problem. <laughs> you maybe you are. <laughs> <laughs> This sugar daddy, were they straight? They didn't specify they were, but I do get a lot of messages on that certain application uh, from straight men. Because this is what I want to talk about Mm. before we have our illustrious guest after the break, uh, which we'll introduce later. Because, yeah, you've had a lot of experience with, with kind of straight guys, haven't you? Well, yeah, I mean, it's how they identify themselves, I suppose. Um, often they're men that are in relationships with women, and I think that they like the look of me because I'm, they might perceive me as um, something in between, androgynous or a little bit feminine, perhaps. Um, but then other, let's call them straight guys, because that's how they're calling themselves, mm. are really interested in meeting other straight acting men. Yeah. Mm. So uh, the reason why I ask is because over the last year, particular person that I know is straight like a friend of a friend their partner who is not their partner anymore every time they see me they kind of look me up and down and go you're looking well Uh, and I go all right thanks and they go yeah you're looking really well and uh and it's there's almost a bit of a free song of an edge to it do you know what I mean would you go there uh probably not but it's interesting and I was thinking, oh, I want, is that somebody who maybe identifies as straight but wants to sleep with other guys? Well, everything's a bit more open um, now. It's just depending on how, how they identify themselves, really. Yeah. So I did a little bit of research and I found another article. You're very good at your research. <laughs> well, I, I find one article and then I, I just cut and paste it. No, <laughs> I do look through a few, but this one seemed quite interesting. And it's an article called Why Some Straight Men Have Sex With Other Men. And it's from the website called The Conversation. And this article in particular is by Tony Silver, who's written a book about such experiences and done lots of research. Mm. And also, the other reason why I wanted to talk about it was because there were lots of stories during lockdown where guys were kind of locked down with other guys and... They things ent- happened. Things happened, yeah. Mm, that's hot. Yeah. I've done a lot of work with sort of, um, you know, sexual health charities and, and organisations. And, you know, they they wouldn't refer to people as gay men. Mm. They call them men who have sex with men because yeah. I think gay being gay is an identity. Yeah. And it's part of um, a culture, you know. Yeah. So it, it's... Is more accurate to say, yeah, men have sex with men, and it's as you say, it's all very fluid and gender is fluid. And do you think people will stop being 
identifying themselves as as being like gay or queer or well, yeah, lesbian. Because I, I mean, that's definitely happened with women. I think that the the term lesbian is is dying. Mm. And it'd be interesting to hear what our illustrious guest, Karen McLeod, who's coming on a bit, will think of that. Because yeah. it's, a, it's a lot of my lesbian friends sort of mourn the loss of, the, of that terminology. Because I feel like women's sexuality has always seen, has been seen to be a little bit more fluid and quite naturally so. Mm. Whereas men's sexuality has always been a bit more rigid and men having sex with men has always been kept like secret, well, partly because it was illegal and, mm. and things like that. So in this article, it says sexual identities and sexual behaviours don't always match because sexuality is multidimensional, is what you've just kind of said really, isn't it? Many people recognise sexual fluidity and some even identify as mostly straight when a closeted gay or bisexual man has sex with another man, he views that sex as reflecting his secret identity. He's not open about that identity, likely because he fears discrimination. When a straight man has sex with another man, however, he views himself as straight despite his sex with men. For all the issues above, I guess. Mm -hmm. It involves two related but separate issues. Firstly, why men identify as straight if they have sex with other men. And second, why straight men would have sex with other men in the first place. So this guy, I interviewed 60 straight men, in inverted commas, mm. who have sex with men. And I think it's in America. And he wanted to find out what the reasons were. So several men explained that their marriages did not have as much sex as they wanted. And while they wanted to remain married, they also wanted to have more sex. So extramarital sex with men to then helped them relieve their sexual needs without threatening their marriages. Do you think that some of the sexual relationships you've had have been a bit like that? Uh, potentially. I think that people might feel that they... Um, how can I put it? They're putting it to one... Uh, they're compartmentalising yeah, it. Yeah, they're comp they're exactly. So, so they're, they're putting it in another box and it's... Um, uh, something that they don't associate with their relationship, which is their, which is part of their identity yeah. and who they are. It's just like, you know, going to Hotel Chocolate and having a fancy chocolate that you don't usually get. Yeah, or I guess having like a kink or a fetish. Mm. It's part of you, but you don't necessarily tell everyone about it. And also there might be something in the fact that maybe uh, gay men might make themselves much more available than other people might. Do you know what I mean? In terms of having sex. Yeah, so, yeah. You, so on the apps, for example, people are really, you're expecting to hook up. And I think that happens within straight apps uh, as well. Yeah. But, but I think that it's much more expected that you put out when someone just says hi. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so these men felt that, as though extramarital sex with a woman would negatively affect their marriages, whereas extramarital sex with a man was not that much of an issue. Most men had not told their wives about their extramarital sex, however. So in order to answer why men would identify as straight despite having sex with other men, it's important to know that sexual identities 
indicate how people perceive the sexual and non-sexual aspects of their lives. The I mean, there's lots of sex. There's lots of aspects to gay men's lives, for example, that aren't about sex. Yeah, totally. You know, you could say something is really gay, and that's used in a negative context often, but it could also just be used in terms of like something being very camp. Yeah, and I guess there is a whole culture. Mm. There's a gay culture, isn't there? That which which was kind of built out of a subculture because of it being illegal. Mm. And it was and just a place where people could actually not have to hide their sexuality. And doing this research about Old Market, which is Bristol's gay village, or has been to- talked about in that way, a lot of the bars, they wouldn't describe themselves as gay bars, they would describe themselves as attitude-free bars, and everybody is welcome. Right. So it's really just about creating a safe space for people, yeah. rather than... It being a ghetto of... Yeah, of the same type of people. Yeah. It's about offering a place for people that don't feel like they could be safe in other places. Yeah, and so kind of accepting everyone to be there. Yeah, so the men that this guy talked to identified as straight because they felt that this identity best reflected their romantic relationships with women, their connections to heterosexual communities, or the way they understood their masculinity. Straight identification also, of course, meant that they avoided discrimination. They felt that sex with men is irrelevant to their identities given every other part of their lives. Apparently most of these guys lived in small towns and rural settings, so this shaped how they perceived themselves. Mm. So they weren't living in metropolitan cities where Mm. it would probably be a lot cooler to be open about your sexuality. Mm. He said that most men that he talked to were happy with their lives and identities and they did not want to identify as gay or bisexual not when people ask them, and not to themselves. Uh, It also came as a surprise, but internalised homophobia was not a major reason the men he spoke to identified as straight. Most supported equal legal rights for lesbian, gays and bisexuals. Other research also shows that on average, straight men who have sex with other men are not any more homophobic than other straight men. I mean, sort of that's obvious, really, because if you're... uh if you, if you create the enemy out of people that you potentially might be forming those sexual relationships with, you're lessening the pool of, of people that you are able to have, have fun with. with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Additionally, while most men knew bisexuality is a valid identity, they felt that bisexual did not describe their identity because they were only romantically interested in women. So it's interesting that they're using it as a romantic identity rather than a sexual one, Mm. isn't it? Many factors beyond sexual attractions or behaviours shape sexual identification, including social context, romantic relationships, and beliefs about masculinity and femininity, amongst others. Straight men who have sex with other men are not necessarily closeted because they do genuinely see themselves as heterosexual. Sexual encounters with men simply do not affect the way they perceive their identity. I was just suddenly thinking about gay men that have romantic relationships with women. Yeah. And they are firmly attached to their identity as gay, but Mm. they fall in love with a woman. Yeah. But is is that more of a friendship thing? Well, I think, is it, it? I think it's romantic. Do and you? I think that the, uh, I think that the boundaries between romance and friendship are blurry. Yeah. So you can't really point a finger at one or the other. Yeah. But uh, 
there's definitely romance in those kinds of relationships. It's interesting how who we want to have sex with kind of informs our identity in a way or how we identify, isn't it? And it's it's an interesting conversation to have, particularly at this present time with kind of gender boundaries kind of being blurred. Mm. And like I said before, I wonder if we'll get to a point where we don't actually have to identify what our sexual desires or or like we don't have to identify ourselves as that well i think because you know like i was saying the bars and clubs may may be doing that less Mm. then in turn people will follow with that yeah but it it was really interesting to think about it because i've always identified as a gay man and that's partly because of who who i want to have sex with and who i who i want to be romantically attached with we all want to know who you want to be romantically attached to. <laughs> Anyone who will have me. <laughs> but it was interesting to think about that and, and how that has informed kind of who I am. And with if I didn't identify as that, who would I be? You know, What kind of person would I be? I don't know. It's an interesting kind of ph- philosophical thing to almost think about, isn't it? And, th- and then how will people identify themselves in the future? Will we- I hope we get to a stage where everybody can just be themselves and it doesn't matter who they want to have sex with or how they want to identify, it's just them as that person and we accept them for that. Well, they're just spiritual animal. Yeah. What is your spiritual animal? Oh, dear. Is it? I think so. Yeah. Mine's a butterfly. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Colourful. <laughs> I've pinned you up and put you in a frame. <laughs> happens to me all the time (laughs) i was a long time pupating (laughs) you've got a lovely blouse on (laughs) thanks (sighs) right on that note should we have a break because we have what my one of my favorite performance poets in the world she is the pinnacle of performance poetry barbara brown skirt will be joining us in the throne room. Also known as Karen McLeod. Uh, her alter ego. Yeah. Yeah. She won't be she won't be Barbara tonight. Uh, she, <laughs> well, she might be. She might be. Barbara I'm hoping Barbara might appear at some point. Mm. But on that note, shall we have a little break and then we'll have our guest arrive yes, after please. the break. I'll tap up the drink. It's... Please do. <laughs> <laughs> softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Right, so we're back, and we have a fabulous guest, don't we, Tommy? Absolutely fabulous. So can you please introduce our fabulous guest? Please be upstanding for the lovely Karen McLeod, everyone. A.K.A. <laughs> Barbara Brownskirt. Hello from us both. <laughs> <laughs> she, I hear she's hiding in the background, but... She, she's in the cupboard. She, she's, uh, as usual, quite rightly so, probably, but... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah maybe maybe she might make an appearance at some point yeah well yeah we'll see we'll see okay <laughs> that was her actually oh okay <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's yeah but she got to get back to the bus stop <laughs> Yeah, well, she, yeah, she she hasn't left it really. Uh, well, she did leave it during lockdown, but she's she's quite busy working on her twenty fifth volume of poetry, mm. which is called "The Bus Stop Will Not Be Sanitized." Right. So um, <laughs> she's quite busy trying to knock together something to sell for Christmas because she's skin. Right. I'm skin. Did she yeah. happen to catch uh, who do you think you are with the lovely Judy Dench? Oh yes, <gasps> yes. Oh my God! It was it was like a theatre play, wasn't it? Well, I spoke I to my just... parents about it, and they were like, "We think she's very um, theatrical." <laughs> <laughs> well, that, no. that, that's kind of her raison d'être, isn't it? <laughs> yes. it's, I I mean, Barbara recorded it, so but just on because the VHS. they're so. yes and um she's yes already the tape's been worn out in certain points of freeze framing um but you know it's it's, she's just beautiful isn't she i think i think she's got more and more beautiful i just don't know how much more beautiful she can get sexy grandma yeah Yeah. to, to barbara she's wife material right obviously she's just an effortless actress as well i find yeah she can just turn her hand to anything and it's it just seems completely natural to her Mm. brilliant it's in her body isn't it i mean it's in her blood and she was just saying about shakespeare how she wishes she could you know and she found out didn't she that she was she uh ancestors had been in the same place as shakespeare or shakespeare you know at the same time and so it was a sort of spooky who do you think 
you are mm. if that's um didn't you find it was like mm. she believed i was listening to one of your other podcasts about uh, sort of witchcraft and ghosts and i think she's she's one she's one that would believe in all of that as well well it just so. makes you think about the sort of dna being passed through and how yeah. that and how there's probably fundamentally still parts of that ancestor that are hers yeah yeah well it's that whole nature nurture debate mm. isn't it mm. as has barbara written a poem about nature and nurture <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> I've given you some material here. Yeah, just let me write write that down for her. Um, She did write a poem about her conception, which is probably, which is called The Night the Static Caravan Shook. And it's about, um, you know, her reimagining her her mummy and daddy having sex in this static caravan and the moment of her birth. But, you know, there's not much nurture, I think, in that poem or nurture, really. It's just a lot of curtains. And sperm. <laughs> so you're you're a, uh, an accomplished writer, and we will talk about that. But as we're on the subject of Barbara, how did she come about? I um, yeah, I was a very theatrical child, and I put on. I used to do impersonations, and I think this is very key to being uh, quite a gay. Uh, you know, a young lesbian child as well, or being queer, because I think a lot of us who are performance, being performers, grew up doing impersonations because we were finding our way in the world of who we thought we were, you know, and there wasn't much really to go that represented who I thought I was. So I used to just, you know, I felt the other day I was just thinking about how a lot of gay people don't have really have sort of childhoods in the same say that same way that heterosexual children do, I think, because we we kind of are performing at the same time as being. So anyway, I think performance was very natural, but also there was wonderful comedians around like Faith Brown and Janet Brown. I don't think they were related and they were doing... But I used, to do, I used to do the Janet Brown show in, the, in uh, my bedroom. Oh, I can't really remember. I just remember the theme tune. Janet, Janet, Janet's the top of the town. That's it. And she had a little top hat, didn't she? Yes, um, yeah. Well, thank you, Tom. You see, if we'd have been together at school, I think we would have been pals I know. then. But yeah, I got into the arts really through com- comedy even back as a child. I, I used to write scripts with my best friend, Emma, and we tried to get on Saturday Superstar Superstar. Um, but because I turned up, I used to impersonate Sue Ellen quite a lot. I had a big crush on Sue Ellen from Dallas. Oh. And as we went to the BBC studios and I turned up with a whole an empty bottle of gin from my dad's cabinet um but filled with water and i was just and and they didn't saturday superstar i mean didn't really like this image of a 11 old girl <laughs> swigging gin so i felt like it, it didn't i didn't really think it through anyway but then i went um i was really into art i was into drawing I just used to shut myself away and just go into my own world. And then I went to art college and went to Cardiff where they specialised in performance art. And that's where I, um, in the 90s, studied um, studied performance art and filmmaking. Yeah, that's what I loved. I didn't find performance art very accessible because I didn't understand a lot of the kind of academic stuff. But by the end of it, my degree show, I was I was investigating drag and... Um, 
and I was impersonating drag queens in the gay clubs in Cardiff because um, I'd seen the film Victor Victoria and decided oh, love it. that I wanted to try and see if I could fool a live gay audience into believing that I was a man impersonating, you know, well, being a drag queen. So being and a woman impersonating a man impersonating yeah, like, a woman. That's right. And I pulled it off. Luckily, due to my height, I'm five foot eleven. And I was very skinny then. I had gay men coming up to me afterwards asking for my phone number. Wow. Um, and when I spoke to them, I, I mean, I was really a method actress. I sort of even put on a deep voice when I spoke to them after the show, just to take it a little bit further to kind of see how how much I could fool people. And, 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 and that was really my first foray into looking at gender and identity, which has stayed with me, like in a sort of Cindy Sherman way, mm-hmm. um, ever since. And that's, so it's quite a long answer, but that's not where Barbara came from. The Barbara came from much later, um, after I'd got a bit lost after art college. There was no internet, and I didn't really know what to do with myself. Um, I went and lived back with my mum and dad, who were, like, really not arty, and I knew I had to. And I had a real struggle with knowing how to sort of live and be an adult and look after myself and pay my own way. So I just started travelling and, you know, I started performing with Ducky, but that was, like, a a performance here and there. It wasn't a clear path. I just wanted to be an adventurous sort of woman, you know. So uh, I went travelling and did dead-end jobs, and then I just came back one day, and my mum was like, what are you doing with your life? And I said, uh, I'm trying to be an artist. And she said, well, and so she said, why don't you become cabin crew? You keep doing... And I was like, and she said, Tony up the road's doing it. He loves it. And he's taken his way, his mum away to Arizona and she sat in a hot, hot tub. So I think she sort of. <laughs> she was angling for a hot tub in Arizona. <laughs> yeah. Aren't we all? She was, yeah. She was sort of thinking it would be a good life for her and for me. And I'm very close to my mum. And, um, Sometimes a bit too close, I think. But anyway, um, yeah, so I just thought, oh, well, I'll give it a go because I keep doing shitty jobs to save off to go travelling around the world. I'll just do it for a bit. So I started doing this job and um, I felt like it it wasn't me at all. But then I decided, well, what if I can pretend a bit like the drag queen? What if I can just pretend to do it rather than really do it? Mm. (laughs) But then that kind of... backfired because there's only so long you can act at doing a, a certain thing for so long especially when I think all, <laughs> aren't all cabin crew pretending especially mm. British Airways ones yes. <laughs> too true too true but there's there's and that's what I started writing about recently but there's a sort of surface acting that you can do to get through the job But when you start to feel like you're losing touch with yourself, which is what happened later on in in the job with me, I I started having a very sort of strange time of it. But then I just just decided, what am I doing with my life? I've got to... I've got to do something. I've got to get back to my creativity somehow. And I just started writing. I'd always wanted to write, but I went on um, a retreat. And that's where I started writing. I had a first sentence of a novel that I was carrying around with me, which 
became In Search of the Missing Eyelash, which was um, my first novel. And the first line is, I woke up in a foreign armpit. <laughs> so I, I just had this one line that I was like, I don't know how to get any further than this. So I went on a, a writing retreat and met Ali Smith, you know, the writer, fiction writer. She really liked my writing, uh, what I was doing on the course. And it all went from there. And I ended up writing a, a book in nine months. Wow. And then it published. And then I had two lives. I had on the ground, back at home, successful author, and then back on the plane, stewardess. And I, and, and that's when things went really awry um, for me because I was, it was all too much. And it, it feels like a sort of, wrong thing to say because the book but the book was a big success and I had interviews in the Observer magazine and all things like this but it was too much it was too much for me I just didn't know what to do with it all and then getting back on the plane people asking me tea or coffee you know (laughs) you know and being like real like everyone is on planes and I just started to disassociate with myself right really did you not feel like it kind of grounded you in a way having that like job like pres- serving the public basically wasn't it but then yeah. you then you've got this other kind of glamorous life of a successful author um i think it it made it undermined me right and i think in in the way even though it felt like an escape to be up in the air again and i could and i was nobody up there you know i was a robot i was a i was a stewardess you know I was everything that everyone wanted me to be did you have did you have friends that you were working with that knew that you'd written this novel no because every week I went to work there was different people I mean there were some people that kind of knew me or knew of me because I had a bit of a reputation as a party girl but um no it was different crew each week I mean each week I went to work with a copy of it in my bag and said, look what I've done. And they were like, oh, right, yeah, yeah, well, I might buy that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? That is the story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and then it wasn't like, it was just sort of the strangest of times. But anyway, around that time, I had I was expected to write a best-selling second novel and it wasn't coming it wasn't happening so uh i started getting really frustrating and i used to run a nightclub um an arty party called moona with my friend jane and this this frustrated poet started coming out of me in the beginning it was a very different kind of character and i we, we were at the camberwell arts festival and we were asked to do a moon a party. That was the night, uh, name of the night. I decided, right, I was going to pretend to be um, an escapee from the Maudsley, which is a mental health um, hospital, which is really wrong. Mm. But but I I almost had to do the worst thing I could possibly do which was a really shit show as well, to, to, to actually find, to unearth Barbara. So I pretended to be um, a patient that believed she was Virginia Woolf, a reincarnation of Virginia Woolf. All she did was she stood on stage and barked, Woolf, Woolf, Woolf. <laughs> anyway, and no one in the audience found it at all funny. And I was wearing a sort of hospital gown that my mum had 
just she'd just been in hospital and she saves all these things for me as as uh, costumes and then i just started thinking there's there's nothing funny about someone who's who's not um you know who's mentally not well but there is something funny about someone who thinks she's a good poet um and she's not and so that's where she sort of sprung sprung from from and she sort of appeared quite quickly i really connect to what you're saying about like fine doing something really badly in the first instant in order to get through that. I'm working with all these young artists at the moment and you, I'm, I'm trying to create a space where they can just do something like possibly it could be offensive. You know, yeah. they just need to take those risks. This is exactly the space that they can do that in order to develop, in order to be who they, you know, who they should be. I, I agree. It, you have to get through. It's almost like breaking a seal of your own ego as well. It's like you have to, you know, to be really good at something, I think you have to be also really bad at bad at it in the beginning, perhaps, and allow yourself to feel that vulnerability. Mm. Um, and then how did that character kind of develop and the, her obsession with Judy Dench and things like that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, because of my experience with drag, I decided I decided that drag was a spectrum. So at one end, you've got drag queens and all that glamour. And at the other end, you've got drab. So I decided... <laughs> <laughs> like, I love it. But what was in- interesting for me, because um, with my first novel, I wrote about a man who dresses as a woman. I mean, it was way beyond before times when trans words were around but I've always had that interest in me so I like in a Cindy Sherman kind of way the sort of construction of femininity so you take away your hair and you take away your makeup and you look you you just don't look like a woman anymore that's what I wanted for Barbara I wanted to have all her sort of female signifiers taken away and so I thought well she can't have hair she and I can't you know how can you not have a character who all right she's going to have to have something covering it all right it's going to have to be a cagoule perhaps that will just take away hair it'll take away her her femaleness and sometimes she wears even more than one cagoule that's correct (laughs) not that has had to stop lately because of the menopause (laughs) (laughs) Barbara is a way that I vent my anger at the world and I don't really need to then be an angry person. She ha- yeah. <laughs> And I'm really interested in people's alter egos. In, in fact, my next big project I want to do, aside from writing about this other book, is that I want to, I want to research alter egos as an actual performance piece and talk to people like Tom and, you know, other people who, you know, it's like how, how these alter egos form and what they do for us that we can't allow in our everyday lives. It was really interesting to, you know, hear you say about, you know, your growing up and that whole journey that you had. And some of it I knew and sometimes some of it I didn't. And I just wondered how much of that is fed into your new um, novel. Oh, right. The new novel, well, the new novel has actually become a memoir because I'm trying to sell it at the moment and I've had various feedback. And so the, the new book is, it's about all of it. <laughs> so um, it's called Holding Patterns which is the um, shape of an airplane, you know, that goes round and 
is stalled before landing. So it's about um, it's about growing up in, in Penge with my mum and dad. And it's about how kind of family informs, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm about to turn 50. I feel like my childhood is more important to me now than it ever has been and looking at it. Um, I don't know whether it's a midlife thing, but what happened then back in those early years really I feel informs everything that has led up to this point and I want to live the inquiry the reason for writing this new book about the airline was I couldn't understand how I'd got into that situation of coming across as quite a confident young woman and being very confident at art college and suddenly losing all of that and then going into this job and getting stuck and 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 everything kind of unravelling. Also, I mean, I think it has a lot to do with being working class. I think it has a lot to do with being gay and, and this idea of, of looking at childhood in order to not, not just free myself up now, but like be heard, I suppose. And I just, I think that's the point of my writing. I've always never really understood myself or the world <laughs> that I live in. But it's interesting so, uh, to think about Penge, I think, because when yes. I visited you there, it does feel, there's something about it that feels nostalgic. And because you still live there, I mean, it, it must feel like you're, you're, you're living those kind of dual lives of the past and the present all together. I think that's right. I, I think I'm probably one of the few people that live where they grew up. There's certain ghosts that have haunted me. And I think, obviously, I'm close to my mum. That's probably why I came back. And it was very cheap when I bought a flat here as well. Yeah, I feel I walked down the streets and there was a, there were stories I needed to tell. But they were just still there on the pavement. There was a particular... The book starts with a, a section of my life in 1983... On a, when something quite traumatic happened and I would, I'd just been to Peggy Spencer's disco dancing class and I was walking home and I was um, molested in the street by a man to about three metres away from my front door. So, and I remember this day as being a, a, a day that just changed everything. I went from being very inside of myself um, as a young girl and I was just sort of reaching puberty, so I had little boobs growing and all things like that, you know, to suddenly knowing there was there was this outside world watching me and like and I and I had this sort of I suppose I experienced what they mean by the male gaze or this kind of doubleness of watching oneself being watched. Mm. Um, and that's that's the day that I went from my interior to my to living in an exterior being watched place I suppose and so in a way that kind of that kind of made sense why later on not immediately because I, I did some really quite sort of funny things to try and cope with it and I thought I'd kind of dealt with it in my own sort of young way which is detailed more in the book but I also went and drank from the you know the alcohol cupboard and around that time and so it's not um so it's quite sort of personal. Mm. In fact, I've not really talked about it before, but I'm sort of, because I know that hopefully the book will get out there at some point. I will have to talk about it. But 
Yeah. It all sort of adds up in a funny way of why later on you start behaving in ways which are not really, you don't really know yourself to be, you know, it's... it's. But I think what you'll yeah. find is people people relate to that experience and have versions of that story and will be very appreciative that, that you've actually gone to that place and tried to analyse what yeah. happened and why it happened and who you are now because of that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, you know, I think those scars are on the pavements in a funny way. Those sorts of moments are still there in the streets, in our minds. And every time I walk along there, I mean, it's still, I still go and see my mum most days because she's, you know, I help look after her now. I know that, that it's like the story is just so attached to that pavement, that bit of pavement. I've, I've often thought about sort of, putting something there or you know mm. I don't know what you know it's just it doesn't need to be there for anybody else mm. but yeah I think it's just ghosts in the streets of where we lived and that's why I'm so interested in in everyone sort of writing about their their childhoods because that's where all that's where everything is that's mm. where <clears throat> that's where we are still if we haven't dealt with those stories if we haven't even written them out or allowed them to kind of even get air you know they, mm. they stay inside of us and can be quite dangerous later on can make us behave I think in all sorts of sort of slanted ways I'm just suddenly thinking about the three of us as little kids talking around this table and what that would feel like <laughs> oh gosh oh. <laughs> I think we well I definitely used to do impersonations do when impressions I was of? um uh I used to do impressions of all of the teachers uh I used to do Alan Wicker Bruce Forsyth a <laughs> uh, bit of Larry Grayson Danny LaRue Margaret Thatcher uh, my, yeah I used to try and do Margaret Thatcher mm. yeah I mean who didn't <laughs> <laughs> I mean we we probably have a Thatcher off wouldn't we <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I did. I did. Now let me tell you. <laughs> That's literally too good. I probably sound. I probably sound like more like Morgan Freeman if I tried to do Margaret Thatcher now. <laughs> um, Karen, it sounds like you've got a wealth of experience that you can lend to our Queens of Agony section. So you up oh. for giving us some advice in the Queens of Agony bit. Oh, well, I can try. I mean, before... when we, Karen has come dressed as her psychoanalysis. Uh, yes. yes. Yeah. I um, must say, I am dressed as a psychoanalyst. Analyst, analyst. I can't even say it. An analyst? I can double up. Okay. Right. Well, at this point, we do a little gong. And I get another bottle of wine out of the fridge. And while that's going on, you get another bottle of wine out of the fridge. Right, so we have uh, a few questions in the Queens of Agony section. A couple of them are quite long. So, dear old queens, and I'm including you this in this, Karen, are very hot guys who are possibly gay or bi naturally flirty? I'm very naive in these terms and still getting to know about being gay myself. But a lot of times like at stores or restaurants, public places, I see guys that catch my attention and who are extremely hot. For whatever reason, my sense also tells me they might be gay, 
in contrast to straight guys, but who knows? I try to check them out, but subtly. I try to do it when they're not looking, but a lot of times I find these guys kind of checking out back or like trying to get my attention and that flirty stare. I get this a lot with very hot guys, to be fair. I don't think I'm hot. I may be a little bit above average, um, <laughs> but that is so. But there's no way that I'm at their level. So I then wonder, are super hot guys just like this, where they just like the attention from men? Like, I wouldn't think that they would want to hook up. And I guess I come across as interested in men too. I don't know. I just want to know if this is common or perhaps I'm missing out because I'm thinking nothing of it, but maybe I do have a chance with them. Wow, that was quite long-winded. Um, yes. <laughs> so I guess, this, guess the general gist is this person thinks that, you know, do you think that very, really attractive people are naturally flirty with everyone? I would think they are perhaps more confident at looking people in the eyes. Mm. It's really difficult to say. I know some attractive people. Um, Do you? (laughs) Can you introduce us? (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think what they're like. Um, No, I mean, we're all obviously very attractive as well, but I just, I just think I, I, I remember having a really attractive girlfriend once and she, and and obviously my wife is too now, but um, she had a confidence and an air where she just would walk into a room. And I think she was aware of her beauty Mm. and she could look people in the eye. And I think having that air is, is kind of hot anyway. And they're testing who's looking at them a lot of the time. And maybe they're just feeling sexually turned on in a sort of narcissistic way yeah but don't you find that i think the whole confidence thing is what makes people attractive it's not necessarily looks it's about just the way that they are and i think i i very often say that like when i was a younger gay man i used to get way less interest than i do as an older gay man and i think i get that interest now because i'm more confident in who i am and how i uh, and how i live my life i'm just very me uh, yeah. And I'm not trying to be something I'm not. So, and I think that that's what people find attractive. So it's that confidence thing. So I don't, nece- I don't necessarily think it's flirting. It's just someone being confident. Yeah, I think, I mean, do you remember when the word gaydar used to come, where it came out? And I used to think I never had one. I mean, I, I think it's very different with, with women because if anyone looks at me directly in the eye, I think they're, they're coming on to me. So, um, <laughs> Well, so do I. <laughs> but obviously they're coming on to me, right? <laughs> no, I, just, I just don't have a clue. I think things are very different for gay men. I do. I do you, well, that, that's an interesting question because, I mean, this harkens back to the kind of like the feature we did at the top of the show about, you know, straight men and you know having sex with other men and stuff like that and, and feeling attractive and stuff. Do you, think, do you think that it's very different for women than it is for men? or very different for lesbians than it is for gay men. Yeah, I think just due to numbers, right. I think there's a lot, you know, obviously we know there's a lot more gay men but I, um, than, than there ever have been, like, in, with with lesbians and, you know, bisexual women. But I, 
I, I, I don't know. I've lost track of what the question was. No, yeah, me too. I, I think it's like, <laughs> is it, are, are like attractive people naturally flirty? <laughs> and I would say, yes. I would, I would say that there's, within this um, letter, there's been, there, there's a sort of presumption on what attractiveness is, yeah. which is a bit like confusing for me because i think everyone's got their own version of what that could be but that's what i mean i think he's but it's what he finds attractive isn't it yeah so what he's finding them attractive so and he's saying that he's trying not to check them out but he knows that they're checking them out well if you're really trying not to check them out then how do you know that they're checking you out (laughs) because he he must be looking at them i think he's like i think he's not i think he needs to be more subtle and not look it, but then i've been doing sometimes i think that someone is so hot that i can't look at them and then i've just missed that opportunity because I, I just literally haven't looked at them and i've left the room <laughs> <laughs> do you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of the ending of game for a laugh do you remember that like oh, yes. you watching us watching you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. but, but also my concern is for the, the writer of this letter is that maybe he is he's so conscious of trying to work out what's going on that he's he's perhaps giving off sort of strange a kind of odd um sort of loitering vibes <laughs> and but, I, um, I also felt like I, you know, you can tell that Bernie's a trained actor because that really came through with the performance, but the performance of the letter. Did you not think there was a sort of odd confusion and sort of well, it's just the way that it's written. It's kind of very awkwardly written. Yes, I, as a as a creative writing tutor, I would ask the writer to, to rephrase it. Yes. Um, <laughs> As a first draft, I would write it again as a second draft, yep. and we could really get to the bottom of, of what he's feeling. There were a lot of likes in there. So <laughs> it was quite conversational. I kind of liked it. Anyway, should we move on? <laughs> I feel like we've kind of answered that one. Um, I, I wish him luck anyway. Yes, uh, don't we all? So, dear old Queens, I've just found out my partner is an exhibitionist. So I was using my partner's computer last week to work from home and I was looking for a document I had downloaded and I found a folder full of pictures and videos of him naked in parks, bathrooms and cars, amongst other places. I'm shocked and I don't know what to do. We've been together for 10 years and I've never saw this coming. He seems to be alone in his video every time or picture, so I don't really think he's cheating or anything. And frankly, I found the material very hot. I always felt that we had a very open and honest relationship and that we've always been able to talk about everything. But I don't know how to bring this up or even if I should... I'm worried he will be embarrassed or mad that I snooped, in inverted commas, but I swear I was just looking for the folder that my work document downloaded to, and I didn't for a second feel like I needed to snoop. I'm very supportive and willing to explore this fetish with him if that's what he wants, but these videos go back four years, so I feel like he clearly doesn't want me to know. I've been sitting on this for a week or two now. It's literally all I can think about. How do I go about this? Because holding 
it in is going to destroy our relationship. I can already tell. Oh when goodness. you were reading that, Bernie, yeah, Karen was just nodding, nodding, nodding along, like it was her letter. Oh my god! <laughs> it was like yes, that they, they that that has been going on for four years. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can concur. All I did was change the gender in that letter. Just right. so you, you, you caught on to me. <laughs> I don't know. It was another lengthy letter, but it's quite a juicy tale isn't it who's I mean, taking, yeah. who is taking the photos then what well, i bet i mean they're just selfies maybe he's got a tripod selfie yeah. stick yeah he's, he's if he's been doing for it, it for a while he's probably got the equipment mm. he's, pro- yeah, he's probably but yeah but but it's like a hobby you know yeah. you invest in a hobby don't you i mean with this yeah. with this letter really we want to see and there's no reason why they couldn't have attached a, a video t- yeah some videos. yeah yes well I, I feel I haven't all the information to make a... Uh... <laughs> I feel like we've got a lot of information here. It was quite a lengthy letter. <laughs> but, we're, but we're very visually fed, aren't we? Yeah, this is true. Is that for a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel it's rather like someone's accidentally come across someone's diary. Oh, um, and I, you know, we know once you once you've looked in someone's diary, there's no looking back. Yeah. You know, and you are then party to to knowing more than you should. Mm. So it's a very difficult situation. But my advice, I think, is for him to make his own set of videos and photographs and put them inside his partner's document <gasps> folder. In the folder. Oh yeah, and go slot them in. And then see what happens. Yeah. And, yeah. I actually, let's go one further. Recreate some of the videos that he's already done and slot yourself in. <laughs> I think, uh, actually, get rid of his videos and put you in there. Delete those photos, yeah. replace them with your own. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. see what happens. Yeah, and wait for him to bring it up over the roast dinner. Yeah, uh, but like Sunday lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but hopefully with the in-laws. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. You see, I think I think it's like, it's, it's one of those things which he's saying is going to drive him insane if he doesn't say something. But there's no way he can bring it up without looking like he's been searching through it, you know. Yeah. So I... I just think he's he's got to he's I've got to treat it in a way in which it's like you know um, a reverent sort of, sort of yeah response be, make yeah. it make it sort of oh well this this is something you do this is something I do too mm. now yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or, or be matter matter of fact about it mm. when he mentions it so oh by the way it's all those lovely videos you've got on your computer yeah they're really hot but then I think you know it could really it could really spoil it for the, the partner that he likes doing this. This is like his own private little time. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, he hasn't shared it, so he doesn't want it to be a participatory activity. Yeah. Um, I, my advice, if he were my friend, I would be saying to him, you have to put it out of your mind or you have to treat it humorously. Yes. If, if you come down in a, in a sort of serious confrontational way, you're 
you're gonna your trust the trust will go from him to you or from you if you get what I mean yeah I I kind of agree because it's or he just kind of subtly hints about stuff in a in a conversation but the the other th- i guess the bigger picture of this in terms of relationships you are allowed to have separate things in a relationship you could oh, yeah you can have like a secret thing so like he's, he's explained that this probably isn't it's not like he's having an affair but he's just doing something separate and private for yeah. him and i feel like you should be allowed to do that in a relationship anyway how would yeah you, i completely agree how would you drop that in subtly well i don't <laughs> you could be like oh i like um seeing photos of interiors of cars have you seen any recently (laughs) yes or i came across a video with someone masturbating on in a park that was interesting (laughs) (laughs) how do you feel about that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I yeah i don't know uh maybe the subtle hint is not the way to go i mean yeah, i think it's subtle would... hint is passive aggressive yeah, I, yeah. Th- I feel like yeah just i mean it's, apparently it's been four years so he's not really he doesn't really want to tell his partner does he so you either you either be completely honest and go i'm really sorry i came across this and i can't unsee it but you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to and it's all fine I would say, because it is, isn't it? I mean, there's no harm in this, is there? No. <laughs> so no. if you think of the bigger picture, there's no actual harm in this. I mean, does does this person who's written in tell their partner everything about what they do? So No, I think I, I, I like that idea of honesty and just sort of upfrontness and not making it a thing. I also like the notion of protect him as the bigger per- person protecting that that other man's secret life yeah. and allow because because once it's out there he's not going to get any more enjoyment out of being naked in the park. Mm. Um, it's a bit like he's going to have his partner's eyes in his mind while he's doing it. His freedom is suddenly gone. You know. Um, mm. I think you're right, and I think that what he needs to do probably next is just assess what his opinion is of secrets and that sometimes they're not destructive and that they can be something that are just secrets. Well, yeah, I mean, it's if you love someone, you allow them to be who they are. You don't try and control what they do or how they are. And that's the bigger picture there, isn't it? It's like you found a part of your partner which you didn't know about but he didn't want you to know about it so actually you should just let it lie and the beauty of what how we've answered this question is we've given them about six different options we've we've given them all the options i feel and it's like multiple guests they can they can pick from yeah. each one what do you think barbara would say to this i would i would think she would not enjoy the idea of anyone with their bits out in public <laughs> What about um, Dame Judy? It, well, Judy Dench wouldn't have her bits out. <laughs> this is true. She has lady bits that don't come out. Mm. She might have her boobies out. But <laughs> yeah. 
and probably has on a number of occasions. Anyway, should we move on? <laughs> to party, her and Maggie Smith, yes. Yes, okay. <laughs> and Kenneth Williams asked them all to look at his bum. Oh, which links me into the next question. Dear old queens, how do I fix my flat butt syndrome? Oh, I know the answer to this one. Do you? Oh, this is good. Okay, I need help. I recently bought some underwear that I feel really cute and sexy in. But there's only one unfortunate issue. After taking some pictures in the mirror, I realised and accepted that my butt, unfortunately, is kind of flat. And I've also realised I would look ten times better in my new underwear if my butt was just a bit bigger. Do you know any exercises or links to exercise routines or anything that can help cure my horrifically debilitating flat butt syndrome? If so, I'd be greatly appreciative. Well, there we go. So, Tom. Just squats. Squats? Mm. Just with a heavy weight. Squat squat with a heavy weight. Because I have a flat butt, really, but I've managed... It's a small butt, but I have managed to put some shape into it by just doing lots of squats. Right. Mm. Uh, what, uh, what, what about implants? Oh, Would you, you go that far? No. I mean, it, I do know people that have had that, mm. and you just have to lie on your front on a sofa for about two months, which is appealing. <laughs> which is kind of what I did during lockdown. So <laughs> um, but I didn't need implants in my butt. I don't know. Karen, what do you think? Uh, I think... Well, I don't know. I always have admired tiny bums. Um, so I, I would just I would just be like, enjoy your tiny arse. Can you hear me? I don't know. Yeah, if of course. Yes. Yeah, sorry, we're just, we're aghast at what you're saying. <gasps> <laughs> enjoy yeah, your I, I tiny arse. Always... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, yeah, you can do like exercises and, you know, I mean, you could wear padded pants. Yes, I've done that as well. Right. I just, do you know, as, a, as someone who is a big bottomed woman, I've always enjoyed the shape of a, of a small bottom. Right. Because it's, you know, I, 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 I'd be of the school. It's like, just, just work with what you've got. And, you know, yeah. I think it's quite attractive. Yeah. I'm sorry to say, I think they're quite, I think all bottoms are beautiful. Yes. Well, I think we can all agree on that. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's what you feel comfortable with in yourself. And if you want to improve your your looks. Oh, oh dear. Karen's frozen. Yeah, there is stuff that you can do, isn't there? I think squats is a good... Yeah, I think they need to assess whether they, you know, because they were really enjoying themselves in their pants in that first instant and whether they could actually just enjoy that. Yeah, and look sexy. Mm. I think I think if the I think it's what you feel sexy in, and sometimes you want to feel sexy, don't you? Or you need to feel sexy. So um, I also condone a cream cake diet for a big butt. For a big butt. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Does the cream just go to the bum? Um, yes. <laughs> it's not mo- the first time you've said that this week. <laughs> <laughs> a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the buttocks. <laughs> um, so, so, Karen, we lost you for a bit because of the wonders of modern technology. Um, do you feel that you've answered enough about flat butts? 
I do. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, there Correct. is. I did remember that there's an episode of She's Got to Have It um, where one of the characters has uh, s- something injected into her butt to make it bigger, <laughs> and and then she has a, an accident while she's dancing on stage, and it kind of her butt pops. So that's the uh, the pitfalls of um, injections. Uh, so maybe if you want to make your butt bigger, cakes or squats or yeah. cakes and squats are a better option. Yeah. Or just love who you are as you are. Or, or be a writer and sit on your ass for eight hours a day and then you'll get a big you'll get a big bum. Yeah. Okay. Well that well I wouldn't know, but you would. So <laughs> <laughs> So there's your answer. Um <laughs> So are you ready for the final question? I am, I am. Great. So, dear old queens, including Karen, um, what are some things that every person should learn by their 30s? I'm approaching 30 in some years and want to... Me too. um, And want to know (laughs) what are the things that every queer person should know by then? Um, Do you know what I was immediately thinking about? Well... Pension schemes, really? <laughs> yeah, that. Do you know what? When you're when you're when you're approaching thirty, you think that's never going to happen to me. And yeah. I, have you got a pension? No. Well, have you got I do. A pension, Karen. Well, no. the, 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 the thing the thing is, is I do, but I've only had one for the last couple of years, so it's going to be worth nothing by the time I need it. Um, but actually, I should have started in my thirties. So yeah, you yeah. are absolutely right. I, uh, I I thought that as well. And I, because it's the, it's the sort of stuff, but it's the stuff that is, it's impossible to imagine when you're really quite sort of in your twenties, even though you feel really grown up. I, I was, I think it's really good advice to actually get like financial advice at that age. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking a bit more about things like if I was meeting this young person now, the advice I would give them from my age, looking back to that age of what, which would be um, to be, to be open to other people's thoughts and feelings and like be really good to, to try to be good at listening to everybody. But also I think at that age, especially you feel like you have to have it all sussed out a lot more. Um, and so I would really say, don't be afraid of asking for help. And I to learn to be able to ask for help and to admit vulnerability is something the young need to know is okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, totally. I, I, I was going to mirror that in a way by saying, don't put too much pressure on yourself to knowing stuff or doing stuff by the time you're 30. Because I think I did that. And I had a really bad time running up to 30 because I put all this onus on what I wanted to do with my life and I hadn't achieved everything that I wanted to do and I was approaching 30. And um, and I think uh, partly because in the gay world, 
when we came out, Tommy, like if you were together, over, <laughs> well, you were a bit younger than me, but <laughs> but also you came out younger than me, so it probably was about the same time. Um, but uh, like on the gay scene, if you were thirty, you were kind of dead, and which was another reason for us doing this podcast because it's a celebration of being older and queer and still enjoying life in your middle age ness, shall we put it? Um, and and I, and I guess there was a lot of pressure. I put a lot of pressure on my like a, I wanted my own business. I wanted to have been successful in 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 doing like and being an actor and 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 a performer and maybe have written something and and I I hadn't done any of that and I was so depressed running up, running up to thirty and then when it happened I just thought oh it's gone it doesn't matter and then I kind of spent my 30s exploring everything that I wanted to explore and that I hadn't explored before and I don't think I could have really done it until then and I think and this is harking back to something you said earlier Karen because when you were you found it difficult after leaving college to kind of find a pathway into what what you could do like career-wise that you'd studied for in terms of performance art and back then those avenues were very limited. It was a very difficult time. You didn't, like, it feels like there's way more opportunity now, partly because of the communication that we have and the internet, but there's way more communication. There's way, way many, or you can see the pathway now to what you want to do, whereas you couldn't back then. It's just like, how do I do this? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, the internet is good for something um, in that respect. Um, is very much uh, you can see communities and you can see opportunities whereas you'd have to buy a newspaper um, and you know I mean there's just no way of knowing and in the 90s I'm sorry to go back to the 90s but you know you had the young British artists who were really successful and like you kind of felt like you know that should be what you were kind of doing as well but how how does that happen how do you even you know I it, it wasn't just about having, you know, a, a show here or there. It was like it being a sustainable future. And they didn't even teach that at art college either. They didn't teach you anything to do with how to be an artist once you've left. It was like, yeah, you're really good, but, you know. <laughs> here you go. Yourself, <laughs> yeah. Here's the world. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's no way, you know. And But I think... I think it is there's a rush to to feel like you've accomplished something but I don't know that's a difficult thing isn't it if that's if that we're talking about ambition and and those aspects of things but, but I think but I feel like you shouldn't limit yourself on time for that there's like no. I know life is short and it goes really quickly that's another thing I'd say to someone who in their 30s but also it's just like don't set those time parameters on it actually just enjoy the journey of it but put one yeah. foot in front of the other and see where it leads you because sometimes yeah. it it doesn't lead you to where you thought it would but actually it leads you to somewhere which is a better place for you that's it i agree and you will find your people yeah and sometimes you don't know who your people are really and it know. takes a while to find your tribe doesn't it in a way i think i don't feel i found my tribe until i was 40 so that's 10 years. So there you go. But by the time you're 30, you need to know that it may take another 10 years to find your t- 
tribe and yourself. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And I think, oh God, if you can if you can have some fun, I think fun and creativity are very well linked together. And we we you know, and I just think to try and play still. I don't know about the people in their 20s now, but I feel when I was in my 20s, I, I was sort of caught in a sense of arrested development. So I was sort of 10 years behind heterosexual people in coming to terms with one's own sexuality and identity. And um, so that's why I sort of feel so young looking, um, even though I'm going to be 50, is that I feel like I'm actually just about to turn 40 in <laughs> sort of heterosexual years if you get well, what I mean. actually 50 so, is the new 30 so <laughs> i feel it yeah me too <laughs> tommy I, 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 you're itching to say something i keep writing the ideas down um i just got carried away but uh fail we've talked about failure as well but just sort of embracing the failure and then I wrote um, sexual liberation and feeling liberated in one's, one's own sexuality will come later. Yeah. So get prepared for that. Yeah. Uh, don't feel like you've missed the boat if yeah. it's not really happening for you. Totally. I think if you haven't worked in an old people's home by the age of 30, you should try and get a little job. Even just volunteer. Yeah. I think because that really gives you a real perspective on life, doesn't it? Yeah, it sort of helps. It, it gets used to... You know, things that happen as you get older, death included, um, and illness, and poo, and all of that stuff. Um, <laughs> Incontinence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I was just going to say as well, when I was 30, I had lots of friends that were at least 20 years older than me. Mm. And also I had friends that were much younger, and I've still maintained that. But I think that's really helpful to have, especially if you're coming, if you're a queer person. I think that that's. I mean, I've always seen to, the benefit of being part of a sort of lineage or yeah. like a little family of, yeah. of queer people, and 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 loved that. Like, yeah. uh, I, I went to see Armistead Morpin talk, and he talks a lot about your logical family, mm. which is not blood related. It's 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 who you find. And and they tend to be people of different ages. Mm. Yeah, I think very wise words from all of us. But I feel like people are so, and, and this is another reason for this podcast, people are so hung up on getting older and denying that in a way or trying to actually fight against it. And yeah. actually there's lots of positives about being older and getting older. And I feel you're right, going to an old people's home you actually see that whole breadth of of some of the positivity of it as well as the negativity. Mm. You know, it's like it's the whole human experience. It's the one thing that we actually can't stop. So mm. just embrace it and enjoy it. I just can't stop now from seeing the benefits of aging. It feels, especially um, having menopause, where I seem to be flourishing in the sense of, um, not worrying so much about what other people are thinking about me. Um, there seems to be this this difference that can only be hormonal, which is the most strangest of things. Because you know, I, I I've had also you know we we all, we we are hormones, most of us, aren't we? Our personalities are even hormone hormonal. And um, it seems when I try to 
kill people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Karen did try to kill me one night. Oh, yes, that's right, Tom. You've been very naughty. <laughs> she tried to suffocate me with a pillow. I, th- I think you've spoken was, about this, that on this podcast. It was wedding night. <laughs> wedding night. Tom was on the pull-out sofa in my front room, and... Uh, and I was, I was suddenly thinking, oh, he's only got like two pillows. I'll go and get him another one. But as apparently, according to Tom, as I was walking towards Tom with his third pillow, <laughs> I said to him, "I've always thought, wondered what it would be like to suffocate someone." <laughs> <laughs> And then I sort of just gave it to him and then went to bed. Um, Welcome to Serial Killers Anonymous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing that. And uh, you can approach me with a pillow anytime you like, Karen. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I think we've come to the end, uh, alas. And, And Barbara hasn't really reared her head. But, you know, but perhaps next time. I look forward to seeing Barbara on stage sometime soon (laughs) and where can people find out about you and Barbara well I have a website www.karenmcleod.co.uk lists everything I do including Barbara but Barbara is on Instagram and Twitter normal B brown skirt I think I've been I'm very excited next year I've been asked to take over the Royal Vauxhall Tavern as Barbara Brown skirt, so um, as a sort of residency, so that's really exciting. Well, we want to be there for that. But yeah, just 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 type it in the internet, and something will pop up. Something will pop up. Okay. Well, well, thank you, and I'll also put some links in our description of the show as well. Some links to your book as well, and uh, we'll plug that a bit. Please say goodbye to our lovely audience. Goodbye, lovely audience, and thank you for listening. <laughs> thank it's you for an being absolute here. pleasure. <laughs> Tommy, please say goodbye. <laughs> goodbye, and thank you, Karen, for coming on. We've wanted to have you for so long, so it's great that it, we've, it's actually happened. Yeah, you've been absolutely brilliant. Um, thank you for listening. We will see you next time on What That Old Queen. That's the Halloween one, It's the Halloween one. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's just... Let's go out with the Halloween one anyway. I mean, it's near enough, right? (laughs) What? That old queen. Written and presented by Tom Marshman and Bernie Hodges. The show was produced by Bernie Hodges for Hodge Podcasting. To contact the old queen, please email hello at that old queen. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.